Kia from your Every Nation Southside family here in Papatoitoi, Auckland. You are now listening to a podcast from our church service and we pray that you will be blessed by it. For more information, please visit our Facebook page or feel free to contact our church office. For those, maybe this is your first time here or first time to hear this message, we've had a three-week uh, sermon series called Remember This, which is behind me. Uh, we're actually on our last uh, part of this, part three. Um, if you've missed any of the other two parts, um, go back to, uh, we got our podcast, jump on there. I'm not, I'm not trying to promote our podcast, it's just, you'll, it'll make more meaning, it'll be more meaningful to understand just the journey that we've gone through the sermon series and, um, you know, the challenges that were offered uh, through those different um, sermons that were preached in the last two weeks. Um, you know, the, referring back to these last two weeks of the sermon series, we actually, let me give you a bit of a recap. We looked at how the Israelites, right, they were God's chosen people. And the, the Israelites were, they were actually in captivity uh, for 70 years. Okay, there was 70 years in captivity uh, under a foreign uh, kingdom um, known as uh, Babylon. So the, the Babylonians, after the 70 years as, you know, after these 70 years as captives, they were finally released, and they were released to go back to Jerusalem. Jerusalem was, um, you know, their homeland, the city, the city of Jerusalem. And the Israelites, they, they got the opportunity as they went back to Jerusalem uh, to rebuild their lives and to actually rebuild the whole city of Jerusalem because uh, Jerusalem it had been in ruins from when they first left there 70 years ago. And when the Israelites started to rebuild their city again, it wasn't the same. Though. It wasn't the same. There, there wasn't much passion as the days of old um, when Jerusalem was such a, an amazing place to be in. Uh, those who know, uh, you know the different kind of kings that were in the Bible, King Solomon made Jerusalem an amazing place to come to. And if you realize at that time in Solomon's days, uh, they were the, the kingdom. They were, you know, they were it around all the different nations around the world. And different pagan kings and different nations, kingdoms, would come to see King Solomon. And they'll see how amazing Jerusalem was. And even those kings that didn't worship Yahweh, didn't worship the Almighty God, they would, they would come and know that this God is a strong God. Whether they worshiped different gods or deities, they came to Jerusalem and realized Yahweh was a mighty God because of the looks and, and the victories that um, Israel and the city of Jerusalem had. And so, like I said, but when they had come back to rebuild after 70 years in captivity, it wasn't the same. God, you know, um, there, there wasn't much passion and they, they weren't as committed to, to rebuild the temple of God that had been destroyed. So the rebuilding of Jerusalem, it actually took some time because of their lack of enthusiasm and their journey. This is where their journey begins. Now you fast forward another hundred years later. This is when we see Malachi. Malachi, this prophet, he enters the scene. And Malachi's message that he is uh, you know, received from God, and, and, and it's 
directed to the whole new generation of Israelites now living in Jerusalem. And Malachi was a prophet to this new generation of Israelites. And the thing about the Israelites at this time, particular time, they argued with God. They would argue with God, blaming God for the struggles in life that they were all going through ever since they had come back. This was 100 years later, though. But one thing that the Israelites overlooked, they never took on board that while blaming God for their struggles, they were the ones that had created many of their consequences of being in things like poverty and just living in corruption in the first place. So I want to add here, if you have, if you have been around any kind of leadership, right, and leadership roles, where, whether it's in business, whether it's leadership in sports, whether it's leadership in church, in companies, you would be familiar with this saying. And the saying says this, everything rises and falls on leadership. Now, this is a very true statement. And, and as we look over the book of Malachi we, we, the, over the last two weeks and today, we can say that this statement is true in the lives of the Israelites living in this time. And we see that from the highest level of leadership in this nation, they were these guys called the high priests. Now, the problem with the high priests of this time during Malachi is that the high priests, they accepted all kinds of defiled sacrifices from the people. And because they were accepting just whatever kind of sacrifices that came through the temple, that caused the people not to care about what they were offering to God now. They didn't care. Ah, yeah, the sheep, the, yeah, this lamb has three eyes, it'll be all right. This one's got three legs, and it's, it'll, it'll still be well. It'll be good for our sacrifice. Yet when they take it to the temple, the priests, the high priest was saying, bring it in, it's okay, <laughs> no worries. And that there is where you see a, a downward spiral of the consequences they faced because they weren't obeying God. And they were giving God, it was like they were giving him the leftovers and, and the scraps as a sacrifice. And so from that and because of that, they would miss out on blessings because their attitude towards God, it was like they were lukewarm or they were just half pie. <laughs> they weren't all in for God. And so we find the people of God in a terrible state at this time of Bible history. The people have forgotten how to worship God. Here's a, here's a life lesson for us from just thinking about what I've just shared. If your relationship with God becomes comfortable, then comfortable, over time, it becomes a routine. And that routine becomes normal to your life. And let me warn you now, you never want your relationship with God to become normal. Because when your relationship becomes normal or comfortable, what follows next 
is boredom. You become bored in your relationship with God. And that is when you start compromising your relationship in Him. I'm a person, uh, you know, perfect example of that. And I, growing up as a, you know, when I first gave my life, um, probably the fifth time I had given my life to Christ. <laughs> um, I've given my life to Christ every time. I did before coming in, no jokes. You know, growing up, just as a Christian, right, um, and I really dedicated my life, I was serious as a teenager, there were, there were times where my relationship with God, to be very honest with you, has become comfortable. It was comfortable. I remember the first experience of being comfortable as a, as a Christian was when I was a teenager. And I remember, you know, doing the Christian things, but I was definitely not a Christian at home. <laughs> you remember my stories, I always say, you know, people would see me on the outside as a great Christian, but if you ever met my mum and she'd tell you the truth <laughs> about how I lived. But it was because I got comfortable with my walk at such a young age. The second time was when I was at uni. And I remember my first year at uni, I was on fire with God. And, and sometimes in your first year, some of you that know when you've studied for your first year, it's a tester for you, eh? You go that way or you go wayward. <laughs> well, I went wayward, but I still pretended that I was going this way in front of people. And I remember going into my second year and my third year at, at university. And some of you know that it was a three-year you know, degree that took me five years. Um, and I tell you, to the honest truth, it was because I got comfortable with God. Some of you are laughing, eh? Because you know that's you guys as well. But we made it! Nah. <laughs> the third time I can remember um, was in my, you know, I got comfortable with God was in my early stages of my marriage. Um, you know, got married and then... Everything was great for the first year, and then we started to struggle with a lot of different things as a couple, trying to learn, um, you know, and I think a big thing for me was our finances. Uh, we, we struggled with finances, and I got comfortable with God in that time. But, you know, it was just a different walk of my life. It wasn't easy. And I remember the fourth time was when I got comfortable was during a time that our church, every nation here in Auckland was going for a transition. There were decisions that had to be made. Some of you have been, were part of those, that transition. And when we had the transition, I was already thinking, man, is this worth it? <laughs> you know, this, this, this is not fun. God, is this really you? God, show me your way. God, show me your will. And there were times that me and my wife would consider, are we supposed to be here? We weren't leaders, pastors at the time. We were leading worship. We were elders at the time. And there was a struggle there. And I, I believe that it's because I got comfortable with God. But I praise God for the examples of people that had gone before me. People like Rowena's dad, my, my, my father, my, my father-in-law, I call him my dad. I'd see him and I'd watch his life growing up. And I think, man, if this man can do it, 
So can I. I'm sure I can. Another great man of God that I loved um, and I followed his example of just walking through so many storms and never being comfortable with his walk was Pastor Ken Ju, the founder of our church. Watching his life through the storms that that man had to walk through here, moving his whole family to, to plant this church. And seeing it year after year, but still, the man never got comfortable with his walk with God. And so these are some examples of, of men that feared God. And that is, when we come back to the story, that is what happened to the nation of Israel spiritually. The Israelites had gone in their lives, had, sorry, had God in their lives, but they also had other things. They had other things attached to God's way that should have never been on equal level with God. They had a kind of blend of God and other things that were not of God. And they thought it was okay for them to just live life like that in front of him. The attitude of, of the high priests, it began because, you know, leadership, everything rises and falls on leadership. And these high priests, the attitude that they had brought, it began a ripple effect to the nation of Israel, with, uh, which, which continued a ripple effect to the generation, the, the next generation upon generation, all because of blending God's laws or being lukewarm or half pie, and with everything else that was not of God, which eventually in time, through the consequences, led to ungodly attitudes to obedience towards God. Wherever, when, whenever you base a decision on ungodly ways or in disobedience toward God, you know, and, and it's prompting, prompting you to do these things, let me say, right then and there you have invited a ripple effect of corruption and poverty into your life and also into the next generation that follows after us. You see, throughout the whole book, Malachi, Malachi is confronting the nation of Israel of their corruption. He confronts them about their worship towards God and, and how they would, like I said, they would get, give half pie or, you know, half pie sacrifices, their scraps, their leftovers to God. He confronts them about how they were just throwing away their marriages to be with someone else and they thought nothing of it. And some of these, these very examples, they felt, and this is the scary thing, they felt no conviction for these choices. Today, I want us to look at a few other things that the Israelites were confronted with. Let me direct you to a question, um, and it's in Scripture, the Israelites challenged this is when the Israelites are challenging God, okay? And it's found in verse 17 of chapter 2, Malachi chapter 2, verse 17. This is what it reads. You have wearied the Lord with your words. This is Malachi talking to them, to the people. Then the people said, well, how, how have we, we wearied him, you ask? 
by saying, this is, this is how, by saying, all who do evil are good in the eyes of the Lord, and he is pleased with them. Or you might be saying, where is the God of justice? In other words, let me break that down for you. It's like them saying this, God, you seem to let all these that are corrupt in the world, they, they get away with so much, and you bless them more than you bless us. Aren't we the chosen ones that you handpicked as your people? Yet you allow all these other pagan nations to live in prosperity, but your very own children of God suffer in poverty. Why do the wicked prosper and the godly suffer? Where is your justice in this, Lord? Now, many of us sitting here would ask that very same question about our own lives <laughs> at times, and even the world that we live in today. You know, Malachi, he, he dives into it a little bit more in the following verses, and, and there were verses that Rowena shared last week in her sermon, taken from uh, chapter 3, verses 1 to 6. I won't read those verses, but pretty much these verses here, God is telling the Israelites this very thing. He's saying this, don't you worry about my judgment, because in time, I will bring judgment, and judgment is coming. That's pretty much the nutshell of verses 1 and 6 in chapter 3. Now, as Christian believers today, our, our belief is that there will come a day where Jesus the Messiah will return, right? And if you've read the book of Revelation, in the book of Revelation chapter, 20, uh, chapter 19, it mentions how Jesus will come. And as in those verses, it actually talks about Jesus coming as a judge. Verse 14 in chapter 19 of Revelation, this is what it reads. The armies of heaven were following him riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Verse 15, coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with an iron scepter. Wow. Let me make it clear here for you. Jesus is not coming back as a sweet Jesus. Sweet Jesus, oh Jesus, what a wonder you are. You know, he's not coming back as this sweet Jesus and gracious and, and happy with peace to all humankind skipping down here to earth. He's not coming in that kind of way. You know how Jesus is coming? Jesus is coming to reign. In Revelation, it, it continues on to say when he comes to reign, then every knee will bow and every tongue will confess whether you're a follower or not, that Jesus is Lord. And so Malachi, judgment will come, ladies and gentlemen. But until then, the flip side to that, God is gracious, God is sweet, God has compassion, He's slow to anger. When we read verse 1 of this chapter, it says here, then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come 
says the Lord Almighty. You know, this verse is it's referring to Jesus as the Lord that they will seek and find. Now, the thing that is so intriguing with this time of history is, you know, after Malachi dies, he does his thing, he passes away, he dies. There is 400 years, 400 years of silence where God doesn't speak or he doesn't intervene with any of his people. 400 years. It's after those 400 years, that is when Jesus comes on the scene. And it's only then the heart can change. Verses 3 and 4, it says about Jesus when he comes. And he will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the Levites and refine them like gold and silver. Then the Lord will have men who will bring offerings in righteousness. And the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will be acceptable to the Lord as in the days gone by, as in former years. If you remember earlier, I shared how these high priests, these high priests, they were accepting all kinds of sacrifices from people, the scraps, the leftovers, they were just accepting them left, right, and center. But we just read here in verse 3 that he will purify the Levites. Well, who are these Levites that we're referring to? For those that don't know, these Levites are the high priests. And so the coming of Jesus is when these Levites, right, the high priests, will be refined like gold and silver. And that's when we see the lives of God's chosen people, as it says in verse 4, they will bring offering, offerings acceptable to the Lord. There is only one person who can purify our hearts. And you can, you know, you can get motivated as, as much as you want to. But that motivation doesn't last long. However, a purified heart, a purified heart, it happens from the inside out. And can only come from having a heart that chooses to live in purity with Jesus and in his obedience. So let's be honest. Think about this. If you try to, to do good and then you fail, right? And then you try again to try to do good and then you fail again. And you just keep going in this type, type of pattern. You're motivated to do all these things, but you just keep falling. At some time or point in all this trying, you'll come to a point where you won't try so hard anymore. And so what happens next? Your relationship with God becomes common or it becomes normal. And what follows next is boredom. Boredom in your relationship with God. And that is when you start compromising your relationship in Him. And hear this. And soon enough after that, you actually become good at faking your relationship with Jesus. And you have fallen into the trap, just like the Israelites, in this time of Malachi. You fall in the trap of giving half-pie sacrifices, your leftovers, your scraps, to God. 
and your walk with him becomes lukewarm. You know, in Romans chapter 2, this is what Paul says. Because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, listen here, you are storing up wrath or wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. I think it's pretty clear. God's judgment, it will come to all those that live lives in, of sin. And justice will be served to those that live corrupt lives, to the unrighteous that live, you know, to do heinous and, and, and wicked things like, the, like what happened in Christchurch. But don't forget, judgment is coming to all to all who are stubborn and are unrepentant toward God Almighty. So that includes you and you and I. So please, please hear me. I'm not trying to, you know, back in the days, eh, I'm not trying to use any scare tactics, okay, to get you to, to choose Jesus for your life. We're not about well, I'm, not, I'm definitely not about, and I don't want you to be about trying to scare people into the kingdom, all right? <laughs> what I'm trying to say, that it, it, it's clear and it's evident in the book of Malachi that judgment is coming. But like I said before, in the meantime, God is gracious. God is passionate. He's patient. And I want to, to, to be clear by saying that he never changes. In verse 6 of chapter 3, it says, I, the Lord, do not change. Throughout the whole Bible, God, he promised that he would be faithful to his people, the Israelites. He didn't promise them because they promised God they would be faithful back. God just promised that his faithfulness, uh, faithfulness regardless. He never changes. I, the Lord, do not change. Coming back to, to Malachi, challenging and, and confronting the Israelites, and what I've learned from this part of Scripture, I can pretty much say this. If you and I, if we, if we have a corrupt spiritual life, then I guarantee you will have a corrupt view of what God looks like in your life, and even a, a corrupt view of the world. Question, who is God in your life? Is he first in your life? Is he first before your wealth, before your money, before your finances? Is he God before your job? Is he more important than, than some of the relationships that, that we all currently are amongst or are in your life? Are you living in a way that proves that those relationships are given to God? Is he your everything? Is he your consuming passion? Or, or is he just a, a side thing that you refer to when, when you need him? Is he a God that you put aside and you push him to the side when he's not convenient because you don't want him to see what you're up to, the things that you and I shouldn't be doing? 
Is, is he a God you have alongside other ungodly attachments so it makes it suit your lifestyle? And we see in verse, verses 7 to 9, God is letting the Israelites know who he is to them. Listen to these verses, and it starts at verse 7. Ever since the time of your ancestors, you have turned away from my decrees and have not kept them. So return to me. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord. But you ask, well, how are we? How are we, we to return back to you, Lord? Will a mere mortal rob God, yet you rob me? But you ask, well, how are we robbing you, Lord? Interesting enough, this, this last part. And tithes and offerings. Now, before I continue, this verse is probably one of the most well-known verses in church that is quoted when it's always about giving financially, right? So I, I want to say this before I continue on. I am not after your money. <laughs> My aim in this next part is, is about your heart condition. The question I asked earlier, who was God in your life? That's our focus right now. And so the issue of money in your Christian life, it has never been about money. <laughs> the issue of money in your Christian life is about God. It's about who God is in your life. It's about what we worship. It's about the heart. And in that verse, to rob God, you know, in this particular context here, to rob God in this context of what the Israelites were doing, they, they weren't, not only were they taking what was not theirs, they were robbing God, but the thing is, they were keeping back for themselves what rightfully belonged to God or to, to God in the first place. What were these people holding back from God? They were holding back what already belonged to God. Did it ever occur to you that some of these people may have had a lot of wealth? And then some of them in the community of Jerusalem may have had next to nothing. But the point is, each and every one of them in this time, they still held back what already belonged to God in the first place. And you see, the voice of Malachi spoke directly to the heart issue of people of, the, of Israel that day, of that day. And to be honest, man, it speaks to you and I and our hearts at this very moment. When the Israelites, they question God in Malachi, you know, um, in this verse, how are we robbing you? The Lord replies in tithes and in offerings. It wasn't about stealing something from God. It was more about holding back what belonged to him in the first place. Let me, let me be real quick on this next point. Why, why did the Israelites tithe? Why did they do that in the Old Testament? Let me tell you now. The people didn't tithe so that the high priests could get a beautiful, you know, beachfront house. They didn't tithe for the high priests for that reason. 
Let me give you some reasons why they tithed. First, they tithed because it supported the high priests and the work that they did. The work that they did at the temple on behalf of the community and of the people of Israel, of God's chosen people. The second of all, it helps support even the structure of the temple. Everything that was needed on site in the temple, the tithes helped in providing for those physical things. Third of all, the, the, the tithe was to help provide the community when they were in need. So if any person that was in need, they, not, you know, they wouldn't just knock on the neighbor's door, got any brown sugar, you know, th they wouldn't go next door. The first place they would go to is the church, the temple. They would go to the house of God, and then the Levites would be able to distribute it out to the community if that need was justified. Now, this fourth reason is the one that I find fascinating. The fourth reason why the people of the Old Testament, they practiced tithing was so that it was a discipline of tithing. An ongoing, regular way of giving back to God. The thing that was already His in the first place. It helped, you know what it did? It helped break the power of people's sin in relying on themselves. Of their materialism. And the attitude that they, to think that they owned their wealth. That was the whole main reason why they did that. And you see, the concept of tithing was to allow the people to have this attitude where they could stand and say, we choose to live by faith. God is my provider because I trust in what he has given me. And there were reasons why they tithed. These, these are the reasons why they tithed in the Old Testament. But let me tell you here, I haven't even mentioned the purpose of, the purpose of offerings. Because don't you forget, in verse 8, it says, tithes and offerings. And for the Israelites, offering, it was not their tithe. They were two separate things. Very quickly, a tithe, a tithe was a tenth of what they earned. And an offering, that was extra. But it was still part of giving back to God what belonged to Him in the first place. So in actual fact, they weren't just giving 10% of their earnings. They were actually giving almost 25% um, of their income back to the ministry for God. 25%. These people, the Israelites back then, they didn't live to capitalize, uh, capitalize on their wealth. They weren't consuming money to shape the economy in the way we do today in the Western world. They lived on what they needed and they gave generously. Now, you and I, in our worldview, would look at that, would look at the way this wealth and how they would do this and, and would probably think, I mean, you know, this, this is how I would have thought, man, that's really crazy for you to live like that. 25%? You just live on it and give it, you know, and give the rest away kind of thing? That, that doesn't make sense, right? But do you know what? If we were to sit 
with the Israelites at that time and say those kind of things, they would turn back and they would say to us, really? Uh, don't feel sorry for me. Or don't think that I'm, I'm crazy. I actually feel sorry for you. I feel sorry for you because of the way you portray your wealth. Why would that be the case? Well, because if you and I struggle to give 10%, let alone 25%, right, of our wealth to God, th then that's proof of how much you and I are yoked to our money. It shows how much we are slave to our money and, and signs of our lack in faith towards God with our wealth. The people of this time, or the Israelites, they would feel sorry for us because we they just can't get it. Yet they'll think, man, you have some selfish struggles <laughs> of not helping others with your wealth because you're, you're too busy trying to hold on to the little that you have, not knowing that all of it already belongs to God anyway. In verse 10, as we continue, it says, Bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in your house and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. What God was telling the people is that if they are willing to give the full tithe, God is willing to give back and then some. So remember people, this is not a prosperity gospel, please. Hear me here, okay? I'm not preaching this part of scripture to try and woo you in to give more money to the church. These verses is to show the heart of the Israelites and, and how they had drifted and how they had moved away and moved far from God and it was time for them to repent and come back to Him. The issue of money in your Christian life has never been about money. The issue of money in your Christian life is about God. And who is God in your life? Who, who and what do you worship? Where does your heart lie in relationship to God today? We cannot open the windows of heaven. We cannot make our nation blessed. Only God can. And God is actually being generous to us when he asks us to bring our tithe. It excites him. Bring it. Test me. Watch me move. He's not doubting. For we should realize that what he is asking from us, it, it is so small compared to what he is wanting to give us and what he is wanting to give us. If you and I, I said this before, if you and I have a corrupt spiritual life, then I guarantee you will have a corrupt view of what God looks like in your life and your worldview. And sharing those parts of scripture where money is always a hard thing to talk about in church, I want you to go and you catch your own revelation, study it. Because when some of us may say, well, it doesn't say in the New Testament, it's an Old Testament law. Yes, it is. But then you need to learn about what Jesus says to give. <laughs> You'll be surprised. Yet again, Jesus is referring to the heart, a cheerful giver. What does that look like? You could be a cheerful giver and you can't afford giving 10%, but you give 
but you're cheerful at giving it. Why? Because it's still a sacrifice for you. Some of us could be very wealthy and 10% is too easy. And maybe God may be challenging you to give more, to sacrifice and challenge the heart. It's got nothing to do about trying to get more money into the church. God is reminding us through Malachi, you've gone wayward. And so I'm using this example of money because money is, is a big thing for, for us. So I'm going to challenge you where it hurts. Where is your faith? You will give to God what is right. Only when you understand God's character, his commandments, and his covenant. God is so generous, and you and I, we too can be generous when you know God's character and his commandments and his covenant. The thing is, Israel felt that God was, they blamed God. They thought, man, God, you've changed. You're so different. <laughs> you know, you, you stopped doing what was right. This is their complaint. This is what they were arguing, arguing to God. But God throughout Malachi was saying, look, I know we, ha we have this love relationship. But somebody in this relationship has moved. And it's definitely not me. This is God saying, because why? I, I don't change. Yet it's a good thing that I don't change. Because if I had changed, you'd be destroyed. <laughs> because historically, over the years of my relationship with you, you haven't been faithful. You've constantly turned away from the agreements that we had the covenant that we, we settled and the decrees that I've given you. God doesn't want your money. He wants you. But God, he knows he will never truly have you until he has your heart. And the thing is, for you and I, our heart, it always follows our treasures. Therefore, God knows until he has your treasures, he will never fully have you. Whoever God was in the time of, you know, speaking through Malachi to the Israelites, he is still the same God that you and I are encouraged or convicted by in our lives today. So God, God is still loving he's still faithful he's still passionate he's patient and he's a generous God yet you've got to remember as well he doesn't change and that's how mighty he is for our lives let's pray